Good morning. You're listening to NPR News. I'm Dan Crocker here with my colleague Kirsty Marone. We're sitting in today for Angela Davis. Glad you could join us. Minnesota is going green and fast. Officials have set an ambitious goal for the state to be carbon neutral by 2050. And we're making progress. Over half of Minnesota's electricity is now produced by carbon-free sources. Last year, state lawmakers set aside tens of millions of dollars for a host of climate projects, from putting solar panels on schools to rebates for electric vehicles. And the federal government recently pledged billions of dollars to spark the clean energy transition. But there are still many challenges Minnesota must overcome to get to green. We need more electric transmission capacity, more EV chargers, more cost-effective ways to decarbonize buildings, farms, and factories. For the past several months, NPR News has produced a series of stories we call Getting to Green on the challenges and opportunities of Minnesota's transition to a carbon-free economy. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into those issues. And to help us do that, we have two very smart guests with us in the studio. First, I want to introduce Margaret Cherney Hendrick. She's the Senior Lead for Innovation and Impact at Fresh Energy, which is a St. Paul-based clean energy nonprofit that develops decarbonization strategies to advance the clean energy economy. Margaret, do I have that right? That's right. Good morning. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Also, Pete Wyckoff, an Assistant Commissioner for Federal and State Energy Initiatives at the State Department of Commerce. He's also a former senior policy advisor for energy and climate in the U.S. Senate. Pete, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Glad you're here. Christy and I will be hosting three shows this week on the green energy transition. That's right. Tomorrow and Thursday, we'll be diving into what you can do to decarbonize your home and also how you get around. Maybe you're interested in buying a heat pump or an electric vehicle. There are lots of new programs and financial incentives to help spur cleaner homes and cleaner cars. But today, we're going to go more big picture, and we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions about Minnesota's energy transition. As Minnesota moves toward more renewable electricity and more electric vehicles, do you have questions about how it will affect your life? Do you have concerns? Are you or your community doing something innovative to reduce climate emissions? The number to call is 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. So let's start by trying to get a better handle on the challenge ahead of us. Minnesota has a goal to be carbon neutral by 2050, but we are still generating a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Margaret, could you set the stage for us? We obviously need to be reducing our greenhouse gas emissions very quickly. How are we doing? Are we on track? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, So, you know, the data, by all accounts, say that we are on track, but just we've made some good um, a progress in drawing down emissions specifically from the power sector, as you mentioned, Dan. Um, but we have a long ways to go. You know, 2023 was the hottest year on record um, since we've been keeping records. Um, and we know that transportation emissions in Minnesota are the largest, um, you know, the sector that's communicating the largest uh, amount of trans uh, emissions. Um, we've got the agriculture sector, which is very large, too. Um, and for all the progress we've made with the power sector, we still have a long ways to go. Um, and in fact, we see emissions still rising from the industrial sector and the residential building sector. So while we've made good progress, you know, the state has just passed a very, very ambitious greenhouse gas reduction goal last legislative session to be completely carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, 2050 is just around the corner. So we need to keep up the good work, but then we need to also accelerate it. And that needs to be across the entire economy. And Pete, um, let's talk a bit about our electricity system, which uh, is really the linchpin, right, in the decarbonization of of the broader economy. 
Um, and Margaret, maybe you're going to want to weigh in on this as well. But could you explain broadly why getting more green energy on the electric grid is so important? Yeah. So <clears throat> one of the keys to reducing overall emissions, and we have this goal for the state to be at net zero emissions by 2050. We have a goal that's before that. In fact, it's a law to have our electric sector be 100% clean by 2040. Right. And the electric sector is actually the key to doing a lot of work in the other sectors. First of all, the electric sector is something we know how to decarbonize. We know how to get the emissions down. Um, we can do that by switching to more wind, more solar. Our nuclear plants are very important because they are carbon-free in their emissions. And there are new technologies coming along, and there are ways to extend the clean energy into times when uh, the clean energy isn't directly available from wind and solar through storage and chemical and battery. Um, so I'll start with the electric sector and say one of the reasons it's key is because it's something where it's the sector where we know how to do it. Um, and we are making great progress. Most of the progress in our cleaning up of Minnesota's emissions has come from the electric sector. But you can use that clean electric sector. You can use your clean electricity to do a lot of work in other areas of the economy. Famously, you can drive a car that is run by electricity rather than by gas. As you do that, A, it's very much more efficient. An electric car is just more efficient than a gas car. So you're saving total energy use that way. And it also allows you to tap into a source of power that we know how to make clean. We don't have a way to take gasoline and make it clean. So as we switched more of our things we use gasoline and diesel for to using electricity or using other low or no carbon fuels, we are reducing the emissions from the transportation sector, which, as Margaret said, is actually now our biggest sector. But it's something we know how to do uh, and make rapid progress. Similarly, in other sectors like buildings, electrification of heat, electrification, which is using electricity where you have traditionally used fossil fuels, electrification of, of, of heat, electrification of air conditioning, electrification of uh, <coughs> of the appliances you run in those buildings goes a long way to reducing our emissions. Again, because it's just more efficient, and B, because the power source is something we know how to clean. Margaret, I see you nodding your head. Did you want to jump in? No, I, I think this is a, a, a great overall summary. I think what I'd add is that, you know, the grand challenge before us here is that we need to be modernizing our electric grid, building out and expanding our electric grid, because as Dr. Wyckoff mentioned, we have all this new electric demand um, across many sectors of the economy who see electrification with carbon-free electricity as the means to decarbonize. Um, and so, you know, the challenge here is how do we permit, how do we build out, how do we, you know, make sure that we're creating a, a redundant and resilient grid to serve all of this new demand at the same time. And so solar, wind, intermittent, we need to add quite a bit of storage as well. And I think the good news is that storage technology is really um, exploding right now. It's it's really booming. Um, but we need to see, you know, prices come down. We need to see investments, which we're starting to see from the federal government, which is wonderful. Um, and we need to see, you know, um, cross-sector planning. I'd love to talk about all of that. If you're going to call me Dr. Wyckoff, I'm going to have to call you doctor. So maybe we can just go with. <laughs> just don't call me doctor. <laughs> go ahead, Chrissy. 
So is the goal then, maybe, Margaret, you could start with this, um, is is the goal to produce all of our electricity from carbon-free sources and then transition as much of the economy as we can to electric to sort of electrify everything, as the saying goes? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, at Fresh Energy, at least, what we say is electrify as much as we can. Um, so we, um, you know, live in a state where we've got a lot of heavy industry. Um, we have a very large agriculture sector. And so some of those um, e- mechanisms and uses, if you will, in those sectors are just going to be cost prohibitive and not technologically possible to electrify. And so there will be some uh, role for low and zero carbon fuels. But um, by far and away, if we're going to make really um, consistent, durable change in drawing down emissions, we've got to do it through electrification. So it's it's absolutely imperative that we start to um, make sure that we are um, forecasting our demand in the transportation sector, forecasting electric demand in the building sector and doing that while we're simultaneously building out that grid. Go ahead, Pete. Yeah, just to pick up on that. So if you say, where are our biggest emission sectors? It's, it's um, transportation first, then electricity, and then um, buildings as a combined sector. But those aren't the – transportation and buildings are not the ones I think we're so worried about because they're the ones where electrification can really help you a lot. There's a path forward that, yeah. we, that is <clears> – The clear. ones that are going to be the bigger challenges are frankly going to be the agricultural sector and big parts of the industrial sector. So we got a lot, a lot of work ahead of us. And we might try to get to some of that a little bit later in the conversation. Do we – so, Pete, you mentioned uh, that there is a state law now to have all of Minnesota's electricity produced by carbon-free sources by 2040. Do either of you know where we are at with that goal? So, as as you mentioned, we are more than half clean already. We have a huge jump on that. Um, we are working with the utilities of the Department of Commerce and the Public Utilities Commission to help chart a path forward that gets us to that goal by 2040. And I think it is going to be a challenge for very much doable. Um, Margaret has already, I think, dropped that one of the big challenges is going to be in order to get more from an electric sector and to get more from electric sector that instead of all the wires run to a few big coal plants, uh, now you have the sources of generation dispersed all over the place. We're going to need to build out our um, electrical wires, our, our transmission system, and our distribution system. Today we're talking about Minnesota's transition to a carbon-free economy. As Minnesota moves toward more renewable electricity, more electric vehicles, do you have any questions about how it's going to affect your life? Do you have concerns? Are you doing something innovative, maybe, or your community doing something innovative to reduce climate emissions? Join the conversation. The number to call is 651 227 6,000 or 800-242-2828. And I wanted to, we've been producing this series for the past several months called Getting to Green, like we've been talking about. And I want to play an excerpt of one of the stories because we've been focusing and we've we've already gotten to some of this, but about some of the challenges that we do face um, when it comes to, to getting to green. So I want to take a listen to an excerpt of a story our, our colleague Hannah Yang did a couple months ago from rural southeastern Minnesota. Uh, Hannah reported on tension over the land that's needed for some of these large solar and wind projects. Neil Wetzel has lived in Canisteo Township, a few miles west of Rochester his entire life. A produce farmer and a township supervisor, he loves it here. The sun rising, the sweetness of the day. You know, we've had very mild temperatures so far this year. You know, you love the land. It's peaceful out here, but Wetzel says things are going to look different in a few years. Those that live east of here won't have much scenery. 
because they'll be looking at panels. You know, that's that's kind of the bottom line. Canisteo Township will be the site of the Byron Solar Project, a 200-megawatt solar farm. It'll cover between 1,000 to 1,200 acres. That's larger than Central Park in New York City. EDF Renewables began working on it in 2018. It'll generate enough electricity to power about 35,000 Minnesota homes. The Minnesota Public Utilities Commission approved the permits, and the project aims to be connected to the power grid sometime in late 2025. But in this agricultural community where land is important to local identity, the project and the speed it developed has generated emotion and tension. Township Chairman Lauren Torrance says it still leaves a bad taste in his mouth. By the time we heard about the project, it had already been basically signed, sealed, and delivered up high enough so we're not going to stop it. And we didn't get a chance to vote on whether or not it would be a good area for it. I think people at least would have liked to have had a chance to say yes or no on what the project was. That's our NPR News colleague Hannah Yang reporting. Now, that project was approved. But there have been lots of other examples around the country where local opposition stopped renewable energy projects. Margaret, how big of a hurdle is this potential land use conflict in Minnesota? Could it get in the way of us getting to our new state law, which is 100 percent carbon free electricity by 2040? I think it's um, part of a really complex challenge in, you know, moving at the pace that science tells us we need to to avoid the worst, you know, public health and economic impacts of climate change. Um, but at the same time, making sure that we're doing community engagement um, and taking, you know, really an equity first lens when we're charting this type of um, really economy wide transition. And so um, folks really need to be involved. You know, I, I think we heard from that story that, you know, there was a sense of, of lack of involvement, lack of um, having agency in, in the discussion, especially when it affects local land. Um, but you know, I, I think sometimes also what goes missing from this conversation is, you know, what is the cost of inaction as well? Um, and, and we're not really talking about that in a way uh, where we're, we're monetizing it and we're really communicating clearly around um, the threats to, you know, working lands and um, local tax bases and such. So um, while I think it's a, a challenge, I think, you know, really the opportunity here is for us to uh, chart a path where we're really making change equitably and and involving folks and hearing from voices and they need to be sort of voices that are at the table from the very beginning um, moving forward. And that, you know, goes for a just labor transition as well for folks who are, you know, working in, you know, the fossil industry um, currently who um, need to find a space to be able to have um, a family sustaining job in um, the green economy to come. And Pete, is there anything state or local governments can do to reduce those land use conflicts? How do you sort of think about balancing the need for clean energy with the impacts that these projects can have on humans and the environment? So in the in the division that I work in it, at the Department of Commerce, we have a environmental review division or unit within my division. And, you know, there are processes in place and we have highly skilled professionals who are working those processes, and it involves sort of back and forth and stakeholder input. And stakeholder, that's a, that's a big word. Input from the communities that are going to be affected. Right. Um, and we need to make sure we maintain that and get better at it. But I think we are doing a lot the way the system is, and we, of course, need to do more. I raised my kids in Morris, Minnesota, so this policy thing is a, is a 
midlife crisis uh, <laughs> career shift. Um, so I, I understand what it's like to be in the places in the state that have lots of land that is used mostly for agriculture, not that many people, not that much of the demand. So the for future we're looking at is asking those parts of the state to host renewable energy production facilities and send the electricity to where the demand is, which is mostly the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, and I think we need to be very careful to, to take the system we have and make sure it is even better at getting local benefits to those who are producing and and having the electricity transported through their lands. Um, we have a production tax credit for wind and solar that does plow um, monies back into local communities. A lot of rural schools have, have grown to use that as a big source of revenue. So we need to keep doing things like that and come up with new ways so that everybody feels like they are a winner as we make this transition. That's Pete Wyckoff, who's Assistant Commissioner at the Minnesota Department of Commerce. Also with us today, Margaret Cherney Hendrick, Senior Lead for Innovation and Impact at Fresh Energy. We're talking about the energy transition here in Minnesota. The phone lines are open, 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. We have several callers waiting to get in. uh, And I'm going to go to Chris in Portwing, Wisconsin, who's been waiting patiently. Chris, thanks for calling. What did you want to add to the conversation? Good morning, and thanks so much for bringing this critical issue to some real time on your radio. This is fantastic. Happy to do it. Um, Full disclosure, I'm a stockholder in Minnesota Power, and I'm a photovoltaic master trainer. I teach teachers and people how to uh, deploy solar energy systems. So um, generally speaking, our utility up here in Minnesota Power has been doing pretty good in the transition, but we've got kind of a big blunder going on. I've been bringing up at shareholder meetings for the last six years, and that's the Nemagi Trails gas plant. This is a $700 million potential investment in generating energy with gas, which people think gas is some sort of transition to renewables, but the fact is, when you measure the methane releases on the gas generation cycle, natural gas, which is really fossil gas, uh, contributes as much greenhouse gases as coal does. So it's a loser. The other thing I'd like the, the, group, the group to discuss is please say something about agro, agrovoltaics, the burgeoning field of growing food along with using solar panels, and What I'd like to talk about with you right now is stranded assets, because as we transition to a fully renewable energy field, moving to solar and wind with large-scale energy storage, which is what I teach, um, we're going to strand a lot of fossil fuel assets. And how does the economic impact get coped with when we choose not to um, keep running fossil fuel assets, not building fossil fuel assets. And and as a positive note, how many more jobs will we see in the transition to renewables and running renewables compared to the standard fossil fuel industry? Chris, I'm going to jump in here. You've laid out several issues here that, that we could chat about, uh, but I want to thank you for calling. Um, so, Margaret and Pete, maybe the first issue, and we should acknowledge we don't have Minnesota Power here to talk about their decision to to, to move forward with this gas plant, but I don't know if one of you feels comfortable discussing um, 
I guess the arguments for, I mean, I guess one question I have is, you know, fossil fuels have provided that base load energy for years and years. Um, renewable energy is, of course, more intermittent. Is there a place still for those base load plants, or are we at a point now where we need to be moving full steam ahead towards towards the towards the carbon free electricity? I'm going to answer that generally, yes. and then I'll let Margaret weigh in as to whether her organization has a particular um, physician on the particular unit we're talking about. So. You just used the word baseload, and I'm old enough to remember when baseload was a pejorative, not a not a compliment for a generating facility. So baseload is the things that are always on. Coal plants tend to be always on. Um, nuclear plants tend to be always on. And they can't very easily, and Excel is working with the nuclear plants to try to make them so that they can uh, be more flexible. But always on is great, but it doesn't help you when the, the demand is varying. Now, as you said, we have um, new sources of energy that are not always callable because you can't dictate when the wind is going to blow and when the sun is going to shine. So in order to stretch them out to be always available, we need – and it won't be baseload. It will be something flexible. We need sources of energy that we can call on. That can be storage. As the caller said, that can be we took that energy when the sun was shining and when the wind was blowing and we stored it and we used it when they weren't. That can be carbon-free sources of energy that can be turned on and off. And that can be, you know, gas plants, but they're going to have to diminish in their use. And if we really want to get to zero, we're going to have to capture the the um, emissions from that gas plant or burn something other than gas in them. But one thing about gas plants is they can go up and down. They can turn on and off. So they actually make a good complement to increasing wind and solar. The challenge in getting to zero is using those gas plants less and less and then replacing those gas plants either by using those same plants but in a way that doesn't give emissions or by alternatives like storage. So... Thank you. Margaret, did you want to chime in? Yeah, I think, um, you know, agree completely with with Pete's comments here. I think what I will add is part of the complexity here is that I think natural gas in this country uh, has, you know, especially over the last 10, 15 years, been dirt cheap. Um, And that's in part because we subsidize it heavily at the federal level and also because we've had this huge shale gas boom um, domestically. And so... um, that's changing. And what we're seeing now um, is more and more price volatility with natural gas prices. And so that makes, you know, these types of investments in, in gas plants that will, you know, have their, you know, upfront price sort of amortized out year over year and pass through to ratepayers, which, you know, we, we can chat about that. But that is, you know, a, a challenge in and of itself. And the caller mentioned stranded assets. So I think that's a nice segue. But um, absolutely, the um, Cost competitiveness, I think, also of, of these gas plants is calling, being called into into um, question, and uh, we've got a lot more federal subsidies coming down the pipeline. Um, the forty five V hydrogen production tax credit is a great example, and you know I think a lot of folks are looking at green hydrogen in particular as a great way to explore um, how we you know do this. It's called you know dispatchable load um, is another sort of highly technical term, but um, how do we turn on a generator and get electricity out to the folks who need it um, when they need it and, um, you know, when wind and solar are not available. So um, I, I think the the 
the pricing is now changing. We're at this inflection point where um, we really need to kind of review how we've been uh, investing not only in generation, but also the fuels. Let's go to another caller now. Uh, Gary in St. Paul has been holding. Gary, thanks so much for calling in. What did you want to add? Gary has left us. Let's go to actually Paula in Chaska, who called in with an interesting question about her neighborhood. Paula, thanks for holding on. What did you want to add to the conversation? Well, thank you for the expertise you're sharing. My husband and I recently moved into a HOA. It's a single-family villa, and there's like 29 of us. And one neighbor did put up solar panels because neither of his neighbors objected, but we wanted to do that, and we had a neighbor that could see our roof line that objected to us putting up solar panels, so we are not allowed to do that. I just wondered if that could be looked at through the legislators in Minnesota to allow um, people to put solar panels on the roof, even when they're in an HOA. So either Peter or Margaret, do you want to weigh in on that? How often do you see these sort of um, maybe homeowner association conflicts or other resistance that, that maybe get in the way of, of people wanting to, to try these clean energy projects? I can take a first crack at this. Uh, you know, I, I can't speak very specifically to the HOA issue, but as a, as a general rule, I do think that, you know, there's still a healthy skepticism to um, – you know, solar panels, uh, you know, wind turbines, if you can, you know, see something and it impedes your, you know, sight line. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a new idea and um, it, it's challenging. Um, you know, not in my backyard is, you know, a phrase for a reason. Uh, and, you know, there's a healthy skepticism even with uh, electric vehicles, you know. So I think um, the, the grand challenge that, you know, we see, especially at Fresh Energy, is um, making sure to really communicate the value, um, not only that these new technologies um, you bring to the discussion around uh, decarbonization, um, but like Dan mentioned earlier in, in the show, um, and, and Pete as well, how do we make sure that we are um, communicating the specific value to property owners, um, to vehicle owners, et cetera, bringing down costs, um, making sure that we are um, paying off these um, investments in a timely fashion, communicating the amazing amount of subsidies that we're seeing both from the state of Minnesota and from the federal government now that brings down the cost of these um, investments. And so um, I think changing you know, hearts and minds around accepting these types of you know, what we think of as, as great um, you know, green economy opportunities and um, really also bringing up um, good examples of how jobs in Minnesota are being connected to these um, great opportunities. You know, we have um, definitely manufacturers of um, uh, solar panels uh, in the state, um, EV charging um, in the state. And so making sure that we communicate, you know, to the previous caller's point, you know, there are a lot of job opportunities in this green energy transition, too. We were talking uh, during the break about, and Margaret, you kind of cued this up, just the, the sheer amount of money now that's, that, that's being pumped in to help make this transition. Pete, I know that's part of the reason why you came to Minnesota was to help, help the state uh, take advantage of, of, of some of the federal money that, that's out there now. Could you maybe paint a picture of the landscape, how much money's out there, how significant it is, 
in helping us make this transition because I know when the when some of the federal laws were passed in this last Minnesota state legislative session, a lot of people were really excited about about this money that's now available. Yeah, I'll start by saying the biggest part of the state and federal money that's out there, and I can get into some more details in a second, is for moving our electric sector to be clean. And we've already talked this hour about how Minnesota's made great progress in that, in that space. We are already more than half clean, and we now have a lot of federal and state incentives to help us continue to move forward rapidly as we go to a uh, 100% clean electric sector by 2040. Um, I just want to point out that I think there's a cliche out there that what people want are cold, hot showers and cold beer. <laughs> they don't really care how they get it for the most part. They wouldn't like to pay a whole lot for it, and they want it to always be available. So we have this challenge to get to a future that doesn't emit in the electric sector but delivers hot showers and cold beer whenever you want them, and I think we can get there. Now, if we stayed with a fossil-intensive electric system, or if we had because we've made a lot of these moves – we will be forever paying for those fossil fuels. And the price long-term will just keep going up and up. So the cheapest long-term electric sector we can have is one where most of the electricity comes from energies that don't have fuel costs. That is mostly going to be wind and solar. Now, there's a transition cost to get there. You have to build a whole bunch of new stuff. That's exciting for the people to get the jobs to build them. Um, and it's challenging in the way we've been talking about. But once you get through that transition hump, you, on the other side, have a less expensive energy system. It's also cleaner. So win-win. Now, I was out in Washington, D.C. for seven years and, and came back nine months ago. I was... Uh, worked for Senator Al Franken and then Senator Tina Smith uh, and happened to be there when a big historical thing happened. And that is in the first two years of the Biden administration, we passed incentives that will help take the edge off of the costs of that transition. Incentives that will add up to the low trillions of dollars. So as a friend of mine who used to work with Fresh Energy likes to say, this stuff we need to do anyway for our climate goals, it's on sale right now from the federal government roughly 30% off, give or take. In addition to that, the Minnesota State Legislature and the governor got in on the game this last year, first half of 2023, and passed a whole bunch of state-level new programs and incentives that will take the cost edge off as we build this infrastructure and the stuff needed to get to a new clean energy system, which, again, I want to reemphasize, once we are there, will be a cheaper energy system. Margaret, let me ask you about reliability, because I think one of the things we hear from a lot of people is concerns that if we do switch to mainly a renewable energy system, electricity system, we might have more blackouts or because wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. We hear that a lot. Um, is that a legitimate concern um, You know, if this transition is made too quickly, that it could threaten the reliability of our electric system? Well, I just want to assure folks that you know all of this is being done with careful planning, 
utilities, uh, investor-owned utilities in the state of Minnesota are regulated. Um, and so reliability, cost effectiveness, those are two of the really, you know, strong pillars of that um, regulation. And so, um, you know, I, I just want to be clear that reliability is, is going to be front and center in determining how best to modernize and build out um, our electric grid. And, you know, I'd add the cold shower and, and uh, or Cold beer, hot shower, <laughs> depending on what your, your you fancy want. is. It's all fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, p- p- folks want to be able to be warm in the in the middle of the winter. You know, it's especially been, now. Exactly. This is a great example. It's bitterly cold right now. We live in Minnesota. That is a unique challenge to Midwestern states. Is um, how do we make sure, especially when you're moving towards electrifying the building sector, um, that you know when everyone goes home and, and turns on their um, air source heat pump or ground source heat pump all at the same time. You've got this simultaneous, you know, jump in a new electric demand that we're meeting that demand reliably. And so, you know, we don't get that right. People die in this winter, right? And so that's a really, really important piece of the puzzle. And, you know, I think he got it right. You know, we know what to do to build out the electric sector appropriately. Now the real challenge is what do we do in these other sectors too, like the building sector? You know, how do we think about, um, you know, the natural gas distribution system and how that needs to change over time to be able to meet our greenhouse gas reduction goals, but also to be able to keep customers, um, you know, getting cost effective energy, but also reliable energy. And that's why, you know, we're really excited to be exploring new opportunities in ground source district energy. Um, You know, and it's a good example of exploring new technologies that can also be a grid asset. Um, And I think that's really the direction we should be going when I talk about, you know, making sure that we're being planful across sectors is everything that we invest in technologically should be able to communicate back to the grid and potentially add um, a value to the grid, either in reducing demand during these peak times, like I discussed with turning on your air source or ground source heat pump, but also, you know, maybe you can... um, act as a a means of storage. So for example, school buses or any sort of electric bus fleet, you know, they have massive amounts of battery. So can you use that fleet as a means of battery storage to call up um, when you need that uh, large amount of energy? So um, that sort of vehicle to grid or uh, building sector to grid um, type of technology is really where we need to have the conversation go next. I want to, I want to, Pete, I want to get to, so we have a bunch of callers waiting. I want to try to get to um, Gary in St. Paul has been holding on for quite a while and he has, it sounds like he has some concerns about this transition. So I wanted to get to Gary. Gary, go ahead. Thanks so much for your patience. What did you want to say? Yeah. Thanks for taking my call. You I bet. got two quick ones for you. Um, my, my electric bill has been going up more so it's higher than my gas bill is right now. So if you go to gas or electric, my, my bill is going to be, you know, almost doubled from what it was before. And the other thing is on electric cars, um, that's not been proven yet in in these cold states. As far as the batteries go, they can hold up to it. And also, I've talked to several mechanics that said, when you bring your, if you have any problems with your vehicle and bring it in, you're going to have a a labor cost and parts cost that is higher than the conventional gas vehicle. Gary, thanks so much for those questions. Um, I first want to, Margaret, you were nodding your head when he when Gary raised the point about his electric electric bills um, getting higher. Did you want to address that? Yeah, I think it's a really important question, and you know, I think Pete alluded to this earlier in in the hour, but uh, you know, even 
beyond transitioning our grid to more carbon-free renewables, uh, we have an aging grid in this country. Um, and we, I think that's sort of par for the course for a lot of the infrastructure in this country. We have not been investing the way we should have been um, year over year. And so now we're running to this issue where we need to um, you know, modernize, um, build out, and that modernization even of uh, systems that have fossil assets is uh, costly. And so I know... Um, for example, we've seen some electric rates go up in Minnesota recently. Um, and, you know, I think a good example here is, you know, the South Dakota PUC just approved an 11.38% rate hike uh, for Northwestern Energy to cover their natural gas infrastructure. And so, you know, as it turns out, you know, investing in this infrastructure and making it reliable, regardless of what sort of fuel you're using, um, is costly. And so I would I would say to the caller that, you know, um, it, it's a challenge, but this sort of cost effectiveness piece um, for regulation is a big piece of the puzzle. Um, and with more and more of these uh, federal incentives coming down the pipeline, that's meant to, you know, like Pete said, draw down these costs over time. Um, I don't know, Pete, do you want to hop in on that before we move to EVs? Yeah, I would... I would say that a couple things to remember. One, as you move things from running on gas to running on electricity, you're using less energy. So um, there is an efficiency savings that comes there. That said, current electric rates and current gas rates in Minnesota, it doesn't make sense economically for everybody to instantly say, I'm ripping out my gas stove or my gas furnace and I'm replacing it 100% with a with a um, electric heat pump. There are cases where it makes a lot of sense and there are cases where it's much more marginal. So these things will change through time. I will point out that the gas prices are extremely volatile and electric rates tend to be fairly steady. So it depends on the snapshot uh, time that you ask the question. And what, maybe one more thing to add on this is, you know, I, I think um, the value of... of taking energy efficiency measures cannot be understated here, especially in cold climates as well. So, you know, we're talking about this grand challenge of converting an entire electric grid, but, you know, you can also do a lot at home by upgrading your windows, re-insulating your walls, and making sure you're drawing down your own electric demand. Um, and so I know that's going to be a topic for later in the week here, but that type of, you know, energy efficiency measures, weatherization, you know, that first and foremost is like the thing to do to um, get yourself ready for this type of transition. Yeah, we're going to be talking about a lot of those home-related issues tomorrow and tomorrow's show. Um, and then Thursday, we're going to be diving into the whole EV <laughs> topic. Uh, but this caller did mention, you know, questions about whether EVs can operate, how the batteries do in cold climates like Minnesota. Pete, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. The they questioner brings up a real issue that the battery range on an EV is less in a Minnesota winter. So is the gas mileage you get from a car. Um, so there will be challenges. We are at the earliest stage of that transition. These things are getting better with time, but it's not perfect for everybody yet in every uh, way you might use your vehicle. But already, if you look at ownership costs, EVs are cheaper to own than a gas car. And I think that that point will just become more, um, more dramatic as time goes by. Let's go back to the phones. Bruce in Crystal. Uh, Bruce, thanks for holding. What did you want to add? Hi. A uh, number of points kind of came together uh, with the interview with the outstate folks and how 
you know, shipping energy into the big city uh, and uh, transmission lines and right. a number of things, everything on sale. So what efforts are being made to deal with uh, using distributed energy resources so that all of these uh, EVs and uh, power walls and whatever gets installed uh, can be used uh, during times when the electricity is needed, can be dispatchable. Uh, what's being done for behind-the-meter uh, reduction of demand so that we don't have the high peaks? And then for in the city, are there efforts to use land that's lain fallow, basically, for decades, such as the Arsenal, um, the Brookdale area, where Walmart just shut down, and there's been land all around there that has not been used for a couple of decades. Uh, what about within the city, places, uh, large roofs, uh, using those for solar installations and uh I think you get the idea. Yeah, Bruce, I really appreciate that. And I'm glad you brought up this idea of distributed energy, because I think when we first started hearing about solar years and years and years ago, the idea was on rooftops, right, all around the country. And now the focus is more on these really large plants. Um, Margaret, did you want to weigh on this? Or Pete, is is distributed energy part of, part of the solution as well? Because that would also get at that transmission issue, right? Because it would reduce the need for these big transmission lines coming from, from the rural areas. Yeah, hey Bruce. Uh we are going to need big plants out in the in the countryside like Excel will build and like Minnesota Power will build. We're going to need smaller. We're going to need every size. And as you've just indicated there Dan, one of the advantages of small is you can often load it you can often locate it very near where you're going to be using the electricity, which takes a lot of the burden off of that transmission and distribution system. There are incentives in the federal sort of suite of incentives that very much uh, will reward distributed energy. And there are um, ways to use and network these distributed energy uh, systems, so everybody with their home battery, everybody with their uh, hot water heater that can turn on and off and store, um, that we need to be developing that can help manage the electric system in a much more efficient and therefore cheaper way. And there are incentives to do that, and we are working on it. Let's go back to the phones. Jim in Rochester has been waiting. Jim, thanks so much for calling. What did you want to add? Um. I'm from Rochester. We have a, a 20 plus acre um, property on the edge of Rochester, and I've looked into it for a few times uh, as far as installing a solar system to feed energy back under a local grid. The payback, the, the, you know, it's about 120 thousand to put it in, and the payback just isn't there. I'm roughly 65 years old. Um, you know, they talk about 20 years, 30 year paybacks, which is great, but we won't probably won't be around for it. So it doesn't make economically, it doesn't make it, it's not feasible. There's no program out there for us to get um, funding, things like that. I can invest in a stock market uh, um, exchange chain fund and probably get five, six, seven, eight percent return on the money. So it's really not economically viable for us. That's kind of a comment, kind of a question. Yeah. Um, have at it. I appreciate it, Jim. Um, Margaret, Pete, I mean, how important is it to, I mean, that's part of the the goal of 
the subsidies, the rebates, the incentives that are coming down the pipe, right, is to make to make projects like this more more attractive economically. But are are we not there yet? I would say a couple things. One, if you are putting new electricity on the system, you want to build something to add it to the grid. The cheapest thing to build right now are wind and solar. And solar is rapidly sort of starting to displace wind in many places as the cheapest way to add new electricity. What is the payback? There are different ways to own that system. Um, and there are a whole bunch of new incentive programs out there. So I would encourage the caller to, if they haven't actually looked into this recently, look into how the landscape is changing. Um, and I'll ask Margaret if she wants to add anything to that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there are a lot of programs out there um, that, you know, <clears throat> head to Department of Commerce. I think that they have a lot of great information <laughs> around those programs, um, you know, both at the federal level. Um, DOE Loan Program Office strikes me as a, a good opportunity. Um, I also just wanted to give a plug for the, you know, what we're calling the Green Bank of Minnesota that's getting stood up right now, the Minnesota Climate Innovation Finance Authority. Um, they're going to be doing a lot of granting, and I know the... Um, the Green Bag, I haven't heard that Green that Bank. Green, oh, Green Bank. Bank, okay. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, and then, you know, I know the Pollution Control Agency at the state level is also doing, um, has put forth a priority climate action plan, and that's meant to, you know, be able to have Minnesota grab a piece of the $5 billion available for via the EPA for their climate pollution reduction grants. So there's just an enormous amount of money out there. So I would really encourage the caller to get connected to those resources. And I'll just say, that's a big part of this transition that, you know, we need to sort of lock in and make sure people are aware of those, um, you know, opportunities and how to get connected to them. Um, and that also we provide resources for folks to be able to make those grant applications. Um, however much bureaucracy has been simplified, it's still some amount of bureaucracy. And so we want to make this as simple as possible to connect people to that money. Um, and then, you know, I, I think on the flip side also, I'll just mention, you know, getting these projects interconnected to the grid is also something we need to streamline. You know, the interconnection queue right now is super long. Um, and we need to make sure that we are kind of expediting the, that process to get um, these great local projects um, interconnected and, you know, big utility scale projects as well. It's an, it's an all of the above sort of situation. There's enough to go around for everyone to participate, large and small scale. Um, and, you know, we need Minnesota to be doing this, but we also need all of our other um, states that are sort of interconnected with our, our larger regional grid, which is the mid-continent independent system operator, so MISO. Um, so we talk about building out storage opportunities here. We need to make sure that everyone else who's um, in our grid is also doing that regionally. Yeah, you know, I think we hear a lot about from people who are interested in doing a solar project on their roof, but they're told by their utility that it's going to be a years before their project can get connected to the grid. Are those delays and, and sort of that congestion that we're seeing on the grid, is that an obstacle to, to Minnesota achieving its climate goals? It is a real challenge. It is something we are working hard on at the Department of Commerce. It's something the utilities, I think, are hopefully working on. It is something that the legislature has in its sights and the governor's office and the, um, the PUC. So we're working on it. Well, our time is up for today. There's lots more we could have gotten to, but I want to thank our guests, Margaret Cherney-Hendrick, Senior Lead for Innovation and Impact at Fresh Energy, Pete Wyckoff, Assistant Commissioner for Federal and State Energy Initiatives at the State Department of Commerce. This conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember, we'll be on the next couple days to talk more about this transition, specifically about homes and transportation. 
Be safe, everyone. Join us again tomorrow at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.